together. Let us now give our attention to the reading and hearing of God's Word in Psalm 115. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto Thy name give glory, for Thy mercy and for Thy truth's sake. Whereof shall the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is every one that trusteth in them. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. Ye are blessed of the Lord which made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's. But the earth hath he given to the children of men. The, day, the dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. As we make our way through the Psalter, we've come to the fifth and final book of the Psalter. Um, We've seen thus far in this final book the two divisions of the fifth book, the Davidic Psalms there in in chapters 108 through 110. And then we see these Hallelujah Psalms in chapters 111 through 114. And as we have considered this, and we saw this last time, as we saw the providence of God working in the lives of of His people, there are reasons within these hallelujah psalms that the people of God are to give praise unto Him. Psalm 111 and 112 remind us that we are to praise the Lord because His righteousness endures forever. And then we are to praise Him for His care for those who are in need. Psalm 113 And then tonight we look at Psalm 115 as we see his care for his people. So as we come to this passage, we see a spontaneous praise of God's people for his love and his faithfulness. In Psalm 114, God is praised for his providence and his mighty works in Egypt when he delivered his people by his outstretched arm. Here in 115, we give praise for His glory 
that is unchanging and for his faithfulness. Haven't taken much time to speak about the issue of Hebrew poetry and the parallelism that we often find in Hebrew poetry. It's a little confusing sometimes, particularly to think of these things, but oftentimes in Hebrew poetry, particularly in the Psalms and the Proverbs, you'll find what we call synonymous uh, poetry, where you have a second line and it repeats what the first line says. Um, There is what you call synthetic poetry, which is a second line added to a first line. And then you see an antithetic um, type of poetry where the second line contrasts the first line. And you see some of that here um, in Psalm 115, where you see somewhat of this idea of contrast between the first and second line of the psalm. But here as the psalmist begins, he says there in verse 1, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us. But unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. As we consider tonight this particular psalm, I want us to draw our attention, first of all, to the first point of this psalm, which tells us that God indeed is exalted among his people. There's a plea here in verses 1 through 2 for God to receive glory. I think it's interesting to note here that this psalm begins not with a cry for deliverance, but that God's name would be glorified. What is the question one of our shorter catechism? What is chief what is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Here the psalmist says that the people are called and summoned to give him glory. Now we don't know the particular uh, background to this psalm. It doesn't tell us. But most likely it's in connection with Psalm 114 because this is a, a psalm, a hallelujah psalm, that was particularly sung during the time of Passover. And so in the Passover feast, they're celebrating God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt. And so as the people are delivered from Egypt, and you see them going through the wilderness wanderings, you see this picture of all of the obstacles they faced. You see the picture of the fact that the heathen, as it mentions there in verse 2, are pursuing the people of God. And so in the midst of their trial in the midst of their distress, in the midst of their persecution, they're not praying for God to deliver them. I think that was brought out uh, somewhat tonight um, from our larger catechism. They don't pray for deliverance. They don't pray for freedom from trial and tribulation. What they pray for is that in the midst of that trial and tribulation, that God's name would be glorified. How often when we go through trials, particularly because of our faith in Christ, we're not talking about those everyday trials and struggles that we have, but we're talking about those things that are associated with our relationship with God. When family or friends who are not believers or those that we know 
perhaps mock us and, and speak ill of us. And as we think of our brothers and sisters in more difficult persecution in the Sudan and China and other places, they're not seeking for deliverance, but they're seeking that in the midst of that, God's name would be glorified. And that takes a heart of humility, as Calvin reminds us here in verse 1, that the people of God desire nothing more than that His glory would be exalted. Calvin, Poole, and others, as I've said, are not certain of the occasion of this, but it was written in a time of great trial, a time of great distress for the people of God. So it is not one of despondency and grief. It's interesting that in this psalm, there's not any sense of grief or sorrow. It's a sense for God's name to be honored and glorified. Like Psalm 114, 114, this is a triumphant psalm. It begins on a note of victory, and it ends on a note of victory. Andrew Bonner, the Presbyterian minister back in the 1800s, said of the Baptist missionary who first went to India, Adoniram Judson, it says of him that when he was arrested and tried for preaching the gospel, he laid himself at the feet of Jesus by verse 1. And so that Baptist missionary, as he is laboring for Christ, did not ask to be delivered, but he asked that in the midst of his trial, the name of God would be glorified. And so really that is the plea that we find here, that God would be indeed most glorified, that he would be exalted in the midst of the difficulties and the trials that we face as believers As I said, Passover celebrated the deliverance of the people of God. And yet God is most glorified in the salvation of His people. Note the beginning verse here. There's a repetition. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto Thy name give glory. The psalmist here is very careful That in the midst of the afflictions of the church, this is what the psalm is talking about, the the persecution of the people of God, in the midst of that, he's very careful that God's name would be exalted, that God's name would be glorified. Not us. It is not about us. It is all about the glory of God. Israel did not want glory and honor for themselves, but for God alone. Again, the missionary Adoniram Judson says, if I had not felt certain that every trial was ordered by an infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. He was the first missionary, first Baptist missionary that went to India. And for him to say that he could not have survived his trials if it had not been that he saw God using every trial for his glory. Oh, believer, should that not be our prayer? God's name would be glorified. 
Believers' constant duty is to give praise to God for His mercy and for His truth that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not unto us, but unto Thy name, give glory for Thy mercy and for Thy truth's sake. Here the psalmist speaks of mercy, that covenant faithfulness that the Lord has for His people. It's not just a general mercy, but it is a mercy for the people of God always connected to that covenant faithfulness of God. And it is for His truth's sake that God's name would be exalted. And then he asks the question there in verse 2, Wherefore should the heathen say, Where now is their God? Here as the nations rage against the people of God, the psalmist is very clear that he desires only for the salvation of the people of God and for the glory of God to be advanced throughout all the earth. I wonder how much our view of the world would change, how much our view of the church would change, how much our view of the church's mission would change if we understood that our only purpose is to give glory and honor unto God. And so that is the heart of the psalmist here. God would receive glory. God's name would be advanced throughout all the earth. This will be our endless theme in glory. Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. There is power in God alone. That is the heartbeat of every Christian. God's name would indeed be glorified. There's a second thing here that we see in this psalm. There's that plea for God to be glorified. But as the psalmist moves here, we see the vanity of of these false gods that the nations worship, the heathen nations. He asked the question, where is their God? Where is the God of Israel? You know why he's asking that question? Because as the enemies of God are advancing against the people of God, as they find themselves under trial and tribulation for their faith, The heathen are standing back, mocking them and and laughing. Where is your God? He's not delivered you. Where is your God in the midst of persecution? Oh, believer in China, where is your God? Oh, believer in the Sudan, where is your God? Oh, believer in the U.S. under the tribulations that you face for your faith, where is your God? Young people, as you start out going to college and you perhaps have opportunity to witness to your faith. Where is your God in the midst of your trials? But the psalmist begins here talking about the futility and the vanity of these false gods. Where is your God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatsoever he hath pleased. Here verse 3 reminds us that our God is in the heavens. Nothing can contain God. You cannot take God and put Him in a box. You cannot take God and confine Him to to space. 
When the psalmist says God is in the heavens, it's communicating that God's distance is far from us. That as far as the heavens are above, so far is God from us. God's distance from us is certainly not removed from His people. Psalmist in Psalm 139 says, Where can I go from the presence of God? If I even go to the, to the bottom of the sea, He's there. If I run to and fro, God is there. And so God's distance is not from us. And so when the world mocks at us, saying, where is your God? Our God is, is exalted above the heavens. Our God is all, our God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is exalted as the sovereign king of all the universe. And he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Oh, verse 3 is very troubling for us. Well, where is God when there are 2,000 people killed in an earthquake in the Middle East? Where is God when there is um, a hurricane that comes and, and wipes out all of your property? Where is God in the midst of the trials and tribulations of God of life. Where is God in the midst of the persecution of His people? God is there. He is exalted above the heavens. But He does whatever He pleases according to His holy will. And then He speaks here in this second stanza of the vanity of these false gods as the heathen cry out against the people of God, thinking that their God is silent, their God is dead. But notice the contrast. Our God is in heaven. Our God is exalted. Our God is sovereign. But your gods are dead. Your gods have mouths, but they cannot speak. Your gods have eyes, but they cannot see. Your gods have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they handle not. They have feet, but they can't walk. They can either speak through their throat. Here the psalmist reminds the people of God that the nation's idols are dumb. They're blind. They cannot see. They cannot respond here the image that is displayed in verses 4 through 7 is the imagery of idols. Divine beings which men craft with their own hands. They try to give wisdom and power to these gods. They, they bow down to them and worship them. You remember the stupidity and the ignorance of Israel? When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the law of God in his hands, and what were the people doing? They were worshiping a golden calf. They built this golden calf that they might worship the true God. And yet here the nations craft their idols out of silver and gold. Notice in verse 4 
that they craft their idols out of silver and gold because silver and gold is of great value. I think silver and gold, John, is still of great value, right? But the silver and gold represents that which has worth. And yet the psalmist says they cannot even speak. They cannot even hear. They cannot even smell. They cannot respond to man. Here we see the violation of the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image. That command was not for Israel alone. That command is for all the nations of the earth. Notice verse 8. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in him, in them. Idolatry makes people spiritually dead. Idolatry makes them powerless. Idolatry causes them to put their confidence and trust in that which has no value. To put their confidence and trust in gods that cannot respond. Oh yet, oftentimes we become like practical atheists. We turn to our gods. Oh, we don't have gods of silver and gold, do we? Our gods are often here in our hearts. Sometimes those gods that we give our attention to are those that we run to for refuge. And yet here the psalmist reminds us, don't place your confidence and your trust in these gods where they cannot save thee. They cannot help you in your time of great trial. And so here the psalmist reminds us of the vanity of our false gods. But thirdly, verses 9 through 15, as he gives that picture of the vanity of the false gods of the nations, he exhorts the people to trust in God alone. That is the heartbeat of our Protestant faith. That salvation is in God alone, that our trust is in God alone, that it is in God's glory alone that we stand Now here's the contrast. This is where the Hebrew poetry comes in. You see the heathen gods, and now you see Israel trusting in the one true God. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Israel, the entirety of the people of God under the Old Testament. And then he turns to the house of Aaron to that house of the Aaronic priests, trust in the Lord. Those of you who fear the Lord, trust in Him, for He is their help and shield. So particularly in verses 9 through 11, He reminds them that the Lord God not only is their help, but He is their shield. That God is their trust that He is their salvation, that He is the object of their faith. The shield here represents that that protection that comes from God. As warriors go into battle and they have their, their shields protecting them from all of the, the weapons and the darts and all of those arrows that come against them. 
The psalmist is reminded that the people of God are to put their trust in the Lord for He alone is their help. He, is, he alone is their shield. Saints of God, when we battle against Satan, when we battle against the Lord, we have the shield of God's Word to protect us. When we go into battle every day, we should protect our minds. We should protect our hearts. We should protect our emotions. We should protect our affections. We do that by the shield of God's Word. He is their help. He is their trust. The Lord, verse 12, has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. Verse 12 is so important because not only is God their shield, not only is He our shield and our help, but the psalmist is reminded that God will bless His people. Notice the beginning of verse 12. The Lord has been mindful of us. In the midst of our tribulation, in the midst of our persecution, the Lord is mindful of us. There is not one thing in all of His creation that escapes His notice. The wonderful beauty of the sovereignty of God is it's not just some doctrine that we believe, but it is something practical. Because if God is sovereign, then He is mindful of every detail of our lives. So God will bless us. God will come to our aid. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless, the house, he will bless those that fear him. Notice the psalmist covers all of the people of God, covers the officers in the house. It covers the house of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood. It covers the people of God. It covers all that fear God both small and great, indicating here those of high degree, those of low degree. Whatever position they may have, God has remembered His love and His affection toward His people. O saints of God, the Lord Jesus Christ has endeared Himself unto us. He doesn't turn away from us even in our sin. He does not reject us. But He is mindful of us in every season, in every detail of our lives. And so, He concludes there by saying, The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. This is a wonderful promise. We, we see this promise in baptism. And, and again, we, we need to see in the, in the, the picture of baptism that God is telling us that He will increase our seed. For how many years? Not for just two, three, four, or five years, but for a thousand generations. As God cuts off His enemies, as God comes and destroys His enemies, we are reminded throughout the Scriptures that their memory will not be remembered anymore. If you think of people throughout history, wicked rulers and leaders, their names are no longer remembered. They are long dead. And so the heathen nations will be forgotten. The gods of the, the idols of the nations will be forgotten. 
but the Lord will not only bless his people, but he will increase their seed more and more. And so the people can say, where are all these Christians coming from? They're, they're covering the earth. So the Lord will increase them. He will add to their number. And the Lord is doing that here in our midst. Oh, don't ever despise the fact that we are a small congregation. We are not small by any stretch of the imagination. Perhaps you can look at a church the size of thousand people or maybe like the church Rosemary and I came from, which at one time reported six, seven thousand people, thinking that seems like a large number, but we don't have a large number here. Well, we certainly do. It doesn't say the Lord may increase. It doesn't say the Lord might increase if you follow these steps. It says the Lord shall increase you more and more. You and whom? Your children. And your children's children. And so God has blessed the people of God. You indeed are blessed of the Lord, which made heaven and earth. This God who created all things in the space of six days out of nothing, not even with matter, not even with anything, but with the breath of His mouth. This God who created heaven and earth is the one who forms it and fills it and and brings His people out of the earth. And so we are blessed by the Lord God who created heaven and earth. And then we find here in verses 16 through the end passage, 16 through 18, the call to praise. Notice again the flow of this psalm. There there is no despair. There's no despondency in the midst of persecution. Only that God's name would be glorified. And then as he ends on that final note of triumph, there's a call to praise. He begins and ends with this high note, as we see in music oftentimes, this high note, he begins and ends with it. God has created all things for His glory alone. And here in verse 17, or verse 16, the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's. In other words, God reigns over the earth. It doesn't speak of this nebulous place called heaven. It just simply describes that sphere where God is sovereign over the earth. The heavens belong to the Lord, but He's given the earth to the children of men. The word men there in verse 16 is that Hebrew word Adam, which refers to the first man, Adam, the man of dust. And so to the children of men, to those whom God has created, He has given them power and authority over the earth. Then he says, the dead cannot praise the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. The Lord displays His glory and His power in the skies and in the heavens. You see this in Psalm 19. Psalm 103, he's given dominion, 
So you go back to Genesis 1. He gives man dominion over the earth that he has created. Man rules as one created in the image of God. And it says the dead cannot praise the Lord. It's speaking of those heathen nations, those enemies of God. They are dead. They cannot give praise unto God. They go down into silence. They go down into the abyss. They go down, not just simply to the grave, but they go down into the place of judgment. But God will bless us, and we will bless God from this time forth and forevermore. Psalmist ends on that beautiful note that we will indeed bless God creator of heaven and earth and then he says praise the lord what a beautiful psalm to remind us that as we face the persecution and the trials for being christians we can certainly find comfort in the fact god derives glory for himself alone perhaps that might seem folly and foolish to the heathen nations. But he created those heathen nations. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ, the King and Lord of the church, that second Adam, has created a people that they might give glory and praise unto him. And so saints of God, in whatever tribulations and persecution comes against us, we can rejoice God, the creator of heaven and earth, will bless us, that God will protect us, that God will help us. And that if we trust in God alone for our salvation, we will find His blessing and His mercy. And so as we consider this psalm tonight, let us ask ourselves, do we desire the glory of God? Do we desire our own glory? Do we desire that God would receive honor and glory for His namesake? Or do we simply want our own glory? For the one who finds his salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, he indeed desires, she desires the glory of God alone. Our lips... As we worship our God, give praise unto Him, we lift up our adorations to this God who is exalted over heaven and earth. Let us pray. Let us give praise to our God more and more. Let us raise the the tribute of our praise louder and louder when we sing, when we worship God. Let us Raise our anthems and our praise unto Him who is the Creator of heaven and earth. And let us praise Him and rejoice in Him. For He is our help. He is our salvation. And He is our trust. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do give Thee thanks that Thou alone preserves Thy glory. 
That glory is not given to the idols of the age. Thy glory is not given to any other. For as we are often reminded, even in the book of Isaiah, that salvation is unto our God, and it is for His glory alone. O Lord, may we delight in Thy glory. We may, may we find that Thy glory is our comfort in life and in death. We face these trials when we face persecution for our faith. May we, like the psalmist, desire not our own comfort, our own pleasures, but may we desire the, sal- the glory of our God. O Lord, bless thy word to our hearts. Encourage us even this week that we may go forth with thy help, with thy blessing, with thy strength. May we come to understand more and more of thy mercy and thy truth and thy faithfulness unto thy people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we have heard the Word of God preached, and now we will hear the Word of God as we sing it. So we will sing that portion of Psalm 115, found in section C. Not to us, Lord, not to us. Thank you.